Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. It is time to check in with our Bloomberg Opinion colleagues today. Tara LaChapelle, we are so like lucky to have her darkening the doorway, as uh, Tom Keene would say. We're talking Netflix uh, because Netflix is reporting earnings after the bell. Highly anticipated given how much their shares have absolutely surged and how much competition they face this year. Tara, what are you looking for when they report? So I think a lot of people expect that the U.S. numbers aren't going to be so great. They might miss on those. Um, you could tell by sort of the ramp up in marketing they did towards the end of last year. And a lot of their newer movies and shows didn't get released until around the holidays anyway. So you might see an uptick in customers or, um, uptick in customers leaving or uh, fewer signups in the U.S. But really the growth is coming internationally. So you can, can kind of see how they're so far ahead of these other apps that are launching and how these other companies like Disney are going to have to catch up with that. Um, but I think as far as the threat of, you know, Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus, there shouldn't be too much of an impact on this quarter's uh, earnings yet because, you know, these apps are so new and I don't think that they had enough on them at launch for people to just go ahead and just cut Netflix. But it does point to, you know, a higher uh, rate of churn on all of these apps towards the middle and end of this year as more people become aware of these services and start to kind of bounce between them. Tara, what is, what is Netflix management saying? I know Reed Hastings, the co-founder and CEO, has really always been, I think, very forthright with how he views competition. What is he saying about how the streaming you know, environment is likely to play out over the next few years? I mean, I think he thinks there's room for everybody, but it does mean more spending. You know, we're seeing that already. He said, you know, Netflix spending had gone up like 30% on new content last year because, you know, they can't make a show like House of Cards at $100 million anymore. You know, it's becoming uh, very costly because there's just more studios and more services competing for talent and there is more demand for content so there's a lot more shows out today than there were you know 10 years ago on regular cable TV so I think it's just becoming very expensive and I think that's why last week's release or unveiling of Comcast NBCU's Peacock service was very interesting because they're going the ad supported route and I think that tells you that you know Comcast realizes this isn't really a great business model the way the streaming apps are now and maybe we're going to need to go to advertising to make these profitable. And you wrote a column about how that's the right approach. I think so. I mean, I don't think ads are enjoyable, but I think that when it comes down to price and, you know, just having all these different services and it's it's just becomes very expensive, I think, at the end of the day. So I think if they could find a way to have ads be less intrusive and maybe keep the cost down, it would be good. Is there an opportunity here to have no cost or a very low cost, get enough of a critical mass? And if they're the only mover in this kind of model, they can command a higher premium from advertisers. And it's been shown that people would prefer a lower cost than no ads. Is that the idea? Absolutely. They're going for eyeballs and you know Comcast even said this is going to be free for not just Comcast subscribers but Cox subscribers as well and they're hoping to talk to the other cable operators about this and have those operators make it free for their customers as well because this is all about getting eyeballs not about getting a $5 or $10 a month subscription fee and that's a very different strategy than what these other companies are pursuing you know the the margins on that look a lot better Um, you know Hulu makes more money off of its ad supported customers than its higher subscription based customers so I think that's what Comcast is looking at and trying to emulate. Is Netflix still a 
stock that's driven by subscriber numbers as opposed to, you know, profit margins and free cash flow and things like that? I guess for now, I mean, I think this year that's going to have to change, right? Or maybe they'll have to talk up international more. We're just not going to see the growth on the U.S. side anymore. And, you know, Netflix has kind of gone back and forth between talking about this goal of getting to, you know, cash flow positive versus, well, maybe not now, you know, because there's all these other services and it's very expensive to stock this with content nowadays. So I think, I don't know what the story is going to be this year. You know, something's going to have to change in this business generally. Um, but right now, I don't think subscriber numbers are going to be super impressive tonight. Well, and shareholders don't care about cash burn at this point, right, for Netflix? Um, they're starting to care a little bit more? I, I think people are starting to care a little bit more because they're going to have competition for the first time, real competition. And as, and as much as Reed Hastings says that, you know, their competition is still traditional cable TV and getting people to cut the cord. And he kind of views it as anyone who cuts the cord is good for the streaming industry. You know, Netflix does have rivals and they may not be as great as Netflix, but they're going to be out there and people are curious. Interesting. It'll be interesting to see to what extent these these stories can go from being subscriber growth stories to kind of real business stories and P and L. Because I think it'll be interesting to see what Disney does if they start uh, disclosing their subscribers, which we don't know whether they're going to do that. But uh, initially, it seemed like they were uh, the subscriber numbers for Disney Plus, at least in the first day, the first week, the first month, were were pretty good. Tara LaChapelle, entertainment and telecommunications columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, Thank joining you. us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, you can read more of Tara's stuff. It's awesome stuff where she covers the TMT space. You can read that on Bloomberg.com slash opinion and on the terminal by typing O-P-I-N go. Well, the Senate impeachment trial begins in earnest uh, later today uh, to get a sense of how this could play out. We welcome Bob Mintz. Bob's a partner of McCarter and English based in Newark, New Jersey. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. I guess the first question is, will Senator McConnell uh, allow witnesses to be called? Because that is really probably the first key issue here, don't you think? Yeah, that's ultimately what this entire uh, trial will be about. Uh, we're not going to get that answer, though, for several days. And I think people watching this ought to be paying close attention to these presentations given by the House managers and by the president's defense team. And everything that is said during that process should be viewed through the lens of the question of will it bring four or more senators closer to perhaps joining Democrats and asking for witnesses, or will it push them further away from that? Because ultimately, the climax of this trial will be that vote on whether to call witnesses and whether to ask for additional documents. Bob, there were a lot of discussions over the weekend about media access to the hearings with even C-SPAN, uh, not normally thought of as a firebrand of, uh, of media outlets, coming out and, and really lobbying for better access. Can you talk a little bit about that and sort of in perspective how common it is for press not to really be allowed into most of the proceedings? Well, we've obviously not had very many impeachment trials. This will be only the third and only the second in modern history since the Clinton impeachment trial. And so a lot of this stuff is really uncharted territory. What's going to be interesting here is that while senators do get to ask questions, even that process will be behind closed doors so the media will not be there to listen to what the senators have to say. So there's a lot of pressure to 
have this brought to the public, to have the media there to watch what's going on, but there are also some countervailing forces there that are against that, such as the caucusing of senators privately to ask questions, and then there's also the fact that Mitch McConnell is pushing this 24 hours of argument into a compressed two-day period, so it's quite possible that we're going to see some of these presentations by the House managers and by the president's defense team late into the evening. So... Bob, what do you make of the White House defense brief, the kind of the, the, the what they are laying out as the defense uh, position? Well, what they're arguing essentially is that there's been no crime here that's been committed. And what's really being attacked here uh, is the president's judgment that he was merely acting in the United States' best interests, and all of these charges are little more than political attacks by presidents, uh, by Democrats. Uh, but, but really, uh, the, the, most of the scholars out there who have looked at this don't agree with the position that Republicans are taking. They say that high crimes and misdemeanors do not have to include an actual criminal act. Uh, the problem is that by, by design, the framers gave very little guidance as to what would constitute a high crime and misdemeanor and really left it up to the political process to, be, to decide what would be enough to remove a president from office. I'm curious about Chief Justice Roberts. What's his role exactly going to be here? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, again, the Constitution is very vague on what the role of the Chief Justice was. Uh, when Chief Justice Rehnquist presided over the Clinton impeachment trial, he did very little. Uh, I think he was famously quoted as saying he did nothing in particular and did it very well. So uh, I don't think we're going to see uh, a, a very critical role played by Chief Justice Roberts, because one of the things that the impeachment process provides is that even if the Chief Justice makes a ruling, that that ruling can be overturned by a simple majority of the Senate. Uh, that's obviously not something we would ever see in an actual trial here, and it really sets the stage for the fact that the Senate is the one that will ultimately call the shots here. Last week, uh, Bob, the Department of Accountability found that uh, the withholding Ukraine aid was, in fact, an, an issue, a problem. Uh, does that factor at all into this impeachment uh, process? Well, it's certainly going to be something we're going to see the Democrats arguing, but at the end of the day, that was not a finding of any criminal wrongdoing. And what the Republicans are trying to do is frame this as an argument that since no crime has been committed, uh, a president shouldn't be removed for something that doesn't even rise to the level of criminal conduct. And otherwise, what we're doing is we're taking political differences and allowing Democrats to use that as a means to remove the president from office. Just taking a step back, I think a lot of people aren't following this as closely as people who are in the Beltway or in the media world. And I'm wondering what the big takeaway is going to be, since we know what the outcome is going to be. The likely outcome is that the Senate will not vote to convict uh, and that probably it will be a very short trial. And then everybody will move on, albeit with a lot of noise on both sides, or at least uh, certainly on the Democratic side. Is there a bigger legal takeaway from this whole affair that you think is important. Yeah, well, I think there is. And that is that for impeachment to really work, I think what we've seen is that there has to be at least some bipartisan buy-in. And even in the Clinton impeachment process, when they began the process and they adopted the rules for the trial itself, 
it was a vote of 100 to zero. That meant that every single senator bought into the process, even though they may have disagreed with what the outcome would be. Here we've seeing, we're seeing just the opposite. We're going to see a complete party line vote as to the process. And if you don't have any buy-in from, uh, from the other side as to the process, it's very hard to believe that the outcome will be in any way bipartisan or objective. What is your sense of timing here, Bob? How should we think about this over the next few days? Well, I think the critical moment will come when we do have this decision about whether or not to call witnesses. We're going to have the arguments from both sides that will occur over a 24-hour period. Uh, That will spill into the weekend. And then I think sometime early next week after the Senate spends 16 hours deliberating, they will call up this critical question of whether or not there will be witnesses here. And there are four senators on the Republican side that have expressed some interest in calling witnesses. So there's a possibility that four senators will swing over to the Democratic side to allow for at least some witnesses to be called. And if that happens, we go into an entirely new phase of this trial that will be unpredictable in terms of how it will play out and how long it will last. Bob, just 20 seconds. How should it play out from your perspective? Well, I think that uh, we ought to at least have some witnesses called here, and I think that is the view of uh, four senators, whether or not they will ultimately buck Mitch McConnell, buck the party, buck their base in order to do that. That remains a big open question. Bob Menz, thank you so much for your perspective. Bob Menz is a partner at McCarter in English in Newark, New Jersey. Also, a uh, former federal organized crime prosecutor and was assistant counsel to former New Jersey Governor Tom Keene. So a lot of experience when it comes to... And also, to, yes. a Duke undergrad. This is what matters Lisa to rolls Paul, her Sweeney. Eyes. I don't roll my eyes because I have anything against Duke. I think Duke is a phenomenal school. But I we just, don't need to bring it up every time, is what you're saying. Well, except, you're, except that you do, right? That's basically what you're saying. You're looking at me. Yes, we do have to bring that up every uh, every time. Looking at the Brexit story, the never-ending Brexit story, four years and still moving, interesting thing as it relates to the equity markets. The good news is that the FTSE has been increasing. That's the UK stock market. But the bad news is that the total value of that market is shrinking. I'm not sure how that that math works, but our next Mm. guest does. John Author, senior editor for Bloomberg Markets, joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So reconcile those two things for me, John. Okay, it's down to the concept of de-equitization, that uh, companies are uh, increasingly swapping uh, equity for debt, for all the good reasons that debt is extremely cheap these days, uh, and because they are less interested in raising capital from stock markets. So uh, if a private equity company takes out a large British company, and that has been known to happen, Uh, The the index doesn't move down as a result of that takeout, but the actual market cap of the companies in that index decreases by... uh by, uh, the, by whatever that, the value of that stock company was when it was taken out. This is a really interesting trend because we haven't just seen it in the United Kingdom. We've seen it mm. globally yep. uh, with 
public markets shrinking, public equity markets shrinking as an increasing number of companies opt to either stay or go private, these take yeah. private deals. And the latest over in the United Kingdom, Warburg Pincus is evidently mulling this deal to buy Quilter PLC, yeah. which would be a take private deal. What is the potential consequence of this? I mean, both when it comes to mm. potential returns in public markets, as well as the disclosures and the shareholder power when it yes. comes to some of these companies. Exactly. I mean, that's, that is the concern we We've got to have here is that we've got a model of capitalism that's basically built around shareholder capitalism for the last few decades and it makes a great deal of sense you don't need to uh, socialize companies and have them uh, open to the electorate because they are answerable to their shareholders and to the open public markets if they're not so accountable in some general way through uh, capitalism uh, through through open markets it becomes much more questionable uh, how much public consent you're going to have in those companies. And you've got to be more concerned about whether you're really going to have the creative destruction that makes capitalism work. It is a, it is a, an underlying deep concern. Well, presumably these private equity players take these companies private, do whatever they need to do over their three to five year holding period, and then monetize, exit through perhaps another initial public offering. So shouldn't it all even out over time? It, well, it maybe it should, but it doesn't, or it, it doesn't hasn't now. been in the last decade or so. Okay. Um, uh, in many cases, they're exiting to other private equity companies. Ah. Remember, uh, and also in many cases, the you know, the the, the, uh, the actual assets that that uh, emerge from the private equity process might be smaller, even if they've generated a big return while they've been uh, outside the public eye. They've they've generally uh, they've, they're generally not as big as they were before. So what's the issue here? Is it that the actual shareholder structure or something about public equity markets is yeah. insufficient to handle the needs of these companies right now? Yeah. Or is it just that there's so much money flooding into debt markets based on what's happened from the central banks? It's just better to be private and it's ample financing available. Both of the above. I've, but I would. But the, the point, I think, is that if you say it's just better to be private, which I think is true for a lot of companies, that's an alarming thing to be saying at this point because uh, we have a, both an economy and an ecosystem for savers that's built around public companies. Um, All right, so yeah, it's a fair point. Basically, your 401k program or whatever else, you're basically funneling money into public equities. If that public pool of equities is shrinking, that means that you've got that much less access and the companies that choose to stay private might be the ones that actually are growing the fastest and give you the biggest returns kind of thing, right? We, we work for one that's, yes, right. and, okay. and so on, yes. All right, yes. yeah, full yes. disclosure, Bloomberg LP is private. But I yes. am, I am yes. wondering, going forward, yes. I mean, is the answer just to open up private markets more easily uh, to make it more easily accessible to I, the retail investor. I strongly believe that it should be. Obviously, you need to be very careful indeed about how you regulate that. You don't want mom and pop investors getting into private equity unless they are having their hands held very gently indeed. But in general terms, if you're in your 20s and only putting a pretty small amount of money aside, but beginning to put money aside into something like a 401k, there really shouldn't be anything much more sensible than private equity to, to put it into. It's money you don't want for another 40 or 50 years. You should be able to, that, that should be exactly the kind of patient capital that would be uh, 
good for that sector and it should be a way to uh, and I think uh, we're, we're a good actually, way for them to save. Sorry. Certainly yeah. in the US we're starting to see that. We had Arthur Levitt, the former chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission on mm. over the last several weeks talking to us about some of these uh, bills coming out of the administration, mm. talking about making it easier for certain uh, retail investors to get into private equity. Uh, but of course there's obviously all those risks. Um, I want to switch, switch gears real quickly, yeah. John. Give us a sense as we get close to Brexit, the next stage. <laughs> yes. What's the? I, I'm seeing some articles about you know re, re, relocating people from London to Paris, for example. J.P. Morgan taking out uh, HSBC's office space there. What's yeah. the mood in the city of London among the finance professionals? Is it like it's not going to be that bad, or like we still don't know what's going to happen? More the latter. I was in I was in London for a couple of weeks just uh, just at the beginning of the month. Um, I would mention Amsterdam as well as Paris. Um, people, many more people speak English there. You've got the Schiphol Airport, which is a very well-connected airport. Um, the general sense is they still don't know exactly what's happening, but most of the large banks are braced for a pretty hard Brexit, which means that they're braced to move a lot of people over to the continent. But you know, three or four years ago, people were rubbing their hands looking forward to uh, living in Paris on expat contracts for a few years, <laughs> and it doesn't look as though it's going to work out quite that well for them. John Authors, thank you so much for being Thanks. with us. We really appreciate it. John Authors uh, is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist and senior markets editor for Bloomberg News. Ira Jersey, again, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist from Bloomberg Intelligence, joins us on the phone here. So, Ira, good good to have you back. Talk to us about why the uh, Treasury decided on the 20-year bond and, and maybe not the 50-year or the 100-year bond. Yeah, so so I think a 100-year bond was always a pipe dream. Um, I, I don't think that that was ever going to realistically come about. I, I think it has to do with liquidity. So so one of the things is, at least bureaucratically, and, and the Treasury Department likes to be regular and predictable. And the issue with doing a 50-year, it would be hard to be regular and predictable in the issuance of that, because um, while there might be a lot of demand initially, um, how deep that demand is from the likes of pension company, uh, pension funds and insurance companies was a little bit questionable. So a 20-year kind of fits some other needs in that um, it's still a relatively long-duration product. It fits within you know the 10-year and, and the 30-year. And quite frankly, and, and I think this is an underappreciated fact, is that there's also futures instruments that already trade in that context where you could use to hedge that uh, that part of the yield curve. So because there's already these products that are liquid, um, it, uh, it'll make issuance of them easier because dealers, for example, could hedge the potential risk that they're going to take down a lot of bonds. So, so I think it, it fits a lot of those boxes where they can be regular and predictable and also have um, kind of good execution at, at the auctions. I'm wondering, just taking a broader look at the Treasury market, we saw overnight the Bank of Japan coming out holding policy steady, but increasing their growth expectations. We're seeing that kind of across the board, this view that central banks aren't moving anytime soon and are going to allow inflation to run hot. What's the risk that they get what they ask for and that that disrupts the, the bond market? 
Well, it, it, certainly the bond market doesn't think that that's going to happen. I, I think that the, there is, Lisa, the risk that you're talking about, where if inflation runs hot because the expectation is that central banks are going to leave interest rates, you know, low or, or say at this level, say the Federal Reserve, you know, we think the Federal Reserve will be on hold probably most of this year, if not all of this year. And if anything, they, they're more likely to ease than, than hike. And so in an environment like that, um, if you do get uh, inflation, particularly at the core level, creeping up above 2%, which right now core CPI has been printing above 2%, uh, but core PCE, the uh, th- that's the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, the, the personal consumption expenditures deflator. Um, if that creeps up toward 2 2.5%, then you'd wind up seeing probably a significant increase in things like tips break even. So the inflation expectation built into the market right now has been very steady. And if that starts to creep up, that will wind up leading to a pretty big sell-off probably in uh, in nominal nominal yields. And you know, in, in an environment like that, um, a 25 basis point increase in inflation expectations might lead to a 50 basis point sell-off in, say, 10-year yields. So that would mean um, you know, 10-year yields back above 2% probably on a, a pretty persistent basis. Uh, Ira, give us an update, if you will, on kind of the short end of the curve, the repo market. Are we at a new level of stability or is the market still looking for perhaps a longer term solution to kind of stabilize uh, the short end? Yeah, so, so the Fed uh, is still, I think, looking at um, some kind of facility. They don't like doing the traditional open market operations, given the, the size of their balance sheet right now. But we do have a lot of uh, stability in the front end. And, and, you know, like we mentioned, and like I mentioned on your show uh, quite a lot, Paul, is that, you know, these, these quarter end and these, these kind of times when the balance sheet moves around a lot um, because of, of things like tax receipts and, uh, and just natural functioning of uh, of the financial sector, um, you, you'll see these jumps in things like the secured overnight financing rate or in the Fed funds rate, um, but they tend to stabilize very quickly. Um, and, and right now we're in this period of stability, but you get toward the end of March and you're going to be back into a quarter end situation where you could wind up seeing you know, some more volatility in, in repo. But again, that, that's normal. I mean, that, that happens all the time. It's just now we're hypersensitive to it. Whereas you know, back in 2005 and 2004, um, when things like this happened, it was only nerds like me that, that actually paid attention. And just to put into perspective, uh, since I might be filed into the same category, Ira, uh, we did get the New York Fed's term repo operation results out today, and it was undersubscribed, mm-hmm. showing mm-hmm. that there wasn't as much demand for the services of this operation, just to sort of feed into the narrative that there isn't any kind of disruption. Hey, Ira, going forward, one thing that's really been kind of weighing on me is the lack of movement in all markets, but including in the treasury market. It's been really, really steady and without really big moves. Does this worry you that the market is not positioned for some sort of disruption, albeit uh, potentially something from inflation or potentially a policy uh, a policy move? Well, what's interesting, I think in the treasury market in particular, and, and you're right, you know, we've been in basically a pretty narrow range from about 175 to 195, broadly speaking, for the last four months or so. Um, but I think one of the one of the things is speculators are actually positioned very short. So you look at treasury futures positioning, and there's a lot of long duration shorts in the market. And so, so I think that's one of the things that's kind of impeding a more significant sell-off. That um, so, so it's it's a little bit easier for those guys to cover at this point if they don't think that the risk of higher rates is is uh, is increasing. So, um, so so I think that that's actually 
kind of preventing a lot of big moves, particularly to uh, to higher yields and lower prices in terms of the Treasury market. Really interesting, especially at a time when the move index, which is a, a measure of implied volatility in Treasury yields going forward, is at the lowest level since May 2019. Interesting to see the positioning isn't quite as vanilla as that range uh, would suggest. Ira Jersey, thank you so much for being with us. Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us from Princeton, New Jersey. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.